We're coming again to our second look in Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. I told you last week that this was his first epistle that he ever wrote. Um, I should add that it's, it's possible that he wrote Galatians around the same time or even possibly right before it. Does it matter? No. Do you care? No. But Galatians is a rebuke to like the worst church at the time. And 1 Thessalonians is like a celebration to like the best church at the time. He wrote them in the same you know, neighborhood of time. So when I say it's the first epistle he ever wrote, like it's like, it, you know, it's, it's that or Galatians. It doesn't really matter. But um, in case you ever hear me say that Galatians also is possibly the first epistle he ever wrote, now you know why. They were written at approximately the same time. Now, if you remember last week, Paul spent three chapters resounding with abundant praise and acclamation for the church in Thessalonica. The church here experienced godly leadership from Paul and Silas or Silvanus and, uh, and Timothy. And that church exhibited godly membership and how they received the gospel, how they left their idols, they turned to serve the living and true God, and they waited for Jesus. No other church has as lengthy of a commendation from the Apostle Paul at the intro of his letter. This was an awesome church. But it was a young church. If you remember, uh, this was a church where Paul got to preach for three weeks in the synagogues and then just a few weeks to the Gentiles. And then he had to leave because of the, the persecution. And so it was a young church. It did not have a whole lot of, of backing. It didn't have a solid, uh, solid foundation or, or, you know, or history because it was still so new. They were all new Christians, and if you remember what it's like to be a new Christian, your life is transformed, you are excited, there's an energy about you that, uh, that makes you make uh, incredible changes to, to your whole attitude, your whole outlook, your behavior, etc. And then as time passes, and as you go through trial and suffering, and as your excitement fades, worldliness starts to gnaw at your spirit, and you lose the wonder, and you get used to church, grace doesn't seem so amazing anymore, and you start to realize how much it costs to be a Christian, and then often we see a crash, a stumble and a fall, and your faith is no longer propelled by the sheer force of your emotion. It relies now on your discipline. If you lack discipline, then your faith falters and you start to look back into the world because that's where you remember getting all your joy and your pleasure and your treasure. And so you start to look back over there. Now this is what the Apostle Paul is going to warn against for this young church in Thessalonica. Ministry always starts off well. A young church might start off well, but if they're not careful, they might lose their way. And that's that's going to be especially relevant for us because we as a church are only two years old. And so we're relatively a young church also. And we started off well. We, you know, we have a good momentum to us, et cetera. But I wouldn't want that to breed an arrogance or, uh, or a sense of invincibility. That is not true. Our church is constantly uh, looking to the cross and trying to stay as close to it as possible. But that also makes us a, a very prominent target of the enemy. And so Satan will work harder here than anywhere else. We have to hear this very carefully, and, uh, and as a young church, we have to try to relate to the Thessalonian church, to know that even at a good church, there are things that threaten it. What dangers are there that threaten the health of a young, growing church? What 
where, where should we see a fruitful ministry expecting spiritual attack? Paul has already shown his appreciation for Thessalonica, and so he shows what makes a good church. And now he's going to give this healthy warning for the Thessalonian believers because he knows what breaks a good church. We'll cover it with only eight verses in contrast to the threefold chapters we did last week. We're going to look at chapter four, verses one through eight. We'll do it in two sections. The first two verses, Paul is just going to say, keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And then verses three through eight, he's going to say, abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. Well, let's start with the first idea. Keep doing what you're doing. Verses one and two. This is what it says in First Thessalonians four. Which way do I turn? Is this the way? All right. You pick a direction. There we go. Right. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us <laughs> how you ought to walk. And you know, I'm going to start over. I'm sorry. I put the tech team on blast like that, and they deserved it. All right. Here we go. First Thessalonians chapter four. It says. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now, if you rephrase verse 1, it basically says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as... Sorry, I'm just rereading the verse. It says, Finally... We urge you in the Lord Jesus that you keep doing what you're doing more and more. That's really what he's saying. He's saying, keep doing what you're doing more and more. The Thessalonians were walking with God. They were pleasing God. God wants them, uh, wants them to do that. Paul wants them to do that. So Paul says, stay the course, right? Keep doing what you're doing. He's not rebuking and he's not correcting. He says, you know what you're supposed to do and you're doing it, so do it even more. If you rephrase verse 2, you can say, remember what we already taught you. So bring back into mind, recall all the stuff that we have already taught you, the stuff that you're already living by, and do it more and more. So he's going to remind the Thessalonians of things that they've already been told, and it kind of gives us some insight here. The insight is, just because you know something doesn't mean you're past it, and you've outgrown it, and you don't need to hear it again. We kind of get this arrogance as you, uh, as you get older in, in, in the faith. You start to think, I already know that. So you think it's not a big deal. You don't think you need to go to Bible study. You don't think you need to go to Sunday sermon because you already know it. And that arrogance doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from, from the flesh or the devil. Sermons often retread basic principles, and we need the reminders. The reminders are important for us. I mean, we, we need reminders in very common things. You know when your birthday is, but for some reason, we still celebrate it. You know, you know when uh, your significant other loves you, but you still want to hear it again and again. You know, these things are, are important to us. We, we, we don't just go, because I know it, I never need to hear it again. There's always a danger of thinking uh, that we've, we've outgrown the gospel. We've outgrown the basics, you know, and there's always that, that idea. And the, the Apostle Paul uh, Philippians 3, he says, like, I haven't even obtained all this. I, I don't even assume that I've, I've gotten to the finish line yet. I, I keep pressing on. He says that in Philippians 3 and 4. You know, he just says, I keep pressing on to, to, to get there. I need to get to the righteousness of Christ. You know, I want to know him more. I want to keep repenting of my sin. I want to keep relying on his grace, all of that stuff. There's this danger of thinking that you need to, uh, that you're already where you need to be spiritually. 
if I'm, if I'm being honest, I, I do think that this is the best church in, uh, that I personally know. I think this is the best church. And I guess, uh, you know, that can, that can also put it in my head, like, you know, if everyone, anyone comes to our church, like, they're going to they're gonna be blessed, and they're going to they're gonna be awesome. So there is, like, a certain sense of that in, in my head, but it'd be very dangerous if, if I thought that we were perfect because we are far from finished. We are far from being spiritually complete. In fact, if we think we're, we're perfect and spiritually complete, we're not bringing in new believers who need to continue to mature, right? If, you, if the church is doing it right, there will always be young and immature believers in its congregation because we're making new disciples. Any church that thinks that it, it's just done growing has failed and doesn't even realize it. So there's a bit of an example here in how we as a congregation receive the word and we keep growing more and stuff, but we gotta have in mind that as much as we're doing a lot of good stuff, we gotta do it even more. And stuff that we're, we, we are challenged in, we need, to, we need to overcome that. So here's what Paul means when he says keep doing what you're doing. He says always seek to grow more. Always seek to grow more in walking with God. Right, it's, it's this... I like the tone of Psalm 42. It's like this tone in, in Psalm 42. You know, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. Right? It's that idea that like I, I'm never just done with God. I'm never just over it. The whole, uh, you know, the whole thing has to be centered on Jesus. The whole thing has to be centered on, on what God is doing. Hear what God says in his word. Stay in prayer. Trust the Lord in uncertainty. Obey God's instruction. Confess your sin. Forgive those who hurt you. Serve others. Love the unlovable. Reach the lost. There are so many things that are basic things to our understanding of what God wants to do through his people, and I just don't think that any of us can say that we have mastered all of it. There are so many little things that that you already know, so, so do it, and do it more. If you know how God wants you to live and you don't do it, if you know God wants you to forgive but you don't forgive, if you know God wants you to serve but you don't serve, if you know God wants you to love but you don't love, you don't grow. You know, someone asks you, what are you like today compared to six months ago? And if you're the same, you haven't grown. You don't walk with God, you don't please God, to, to stretch the metaphor a little bit, you have to realize when, you know, walking with God, it means God is walking. If you're staying still, you're not with him anymore. You have to be walking. You're either walking with him or you're walking in a different direction or you're standing still. Only one of those is good for you, walking with God. What's the point of failing in some sinful part of your life and then telling God, well, I do everything else. God, I do everything else. It's just this one area that I, that I fail. And if you just think about like how Jesus talked to the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler said, I do all the other commandments. And Jesus said, ah, oh, but you lack the one thing. And that's where you fail. And because of that, you can't be in my kingdom. I think something that encourages me about Paul's exhortation to grow is that it gives us room to deal with our past. Not everyone is like this, but for me, I often look at who I was a few years ago and how I failed and how I do things differently now. I think every pastor's like this too. Every pastor looks back on his first few years of ministry and goes, what was I thinking? Why would God let me be in the, the leadership of the church? You know, the, the person I was during my seminary years was a nightmare. 
My first few years as a, a youth pastor, I had no idea what I was doing. You can ask David Gim and Hannah Coe about that because they were there. We can always compare what we did in the past to what we would do today, and it'll never match up well. And uh, Paul doesn't do that, right? He's always thankful for growth. He's always excited for growth. He says, pursue growth, right? Look, you're, you're growing, do it more and more. And he's always pushing you forward. He's not going, oh, back then, why didn't you do that? You know it's right, but back then, why were you acting like? He doesn't do that. He doesn't chain you to your past. He, he always invites you to a better future. Don't sit there wishing your past self knew what you know now, right? Celebrate that you've grown in understanding and live better, and don't feel like since every week there's still something to confess, because every week there will be something to confess. Every week, you can always do better. If the Word of God is preaching at you, every week you're going to sit down and be like, you know what, I need to, I need to improve here, and you're going to feel like that, but don't, don't use that as a, a, a way to condemn yourself and say, I'm such a failure as a Christian. Use this as a way to realize that God is always telling you to take a step forward because you're walking. You're not standing still. He's not saying, just be exactly the way you are this week. He's saying, this week, here's the next step. What is the next step? The Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonian church, keep doing what you're doing. Keep following the instructions we gave you. What are those instructions? What is it that he's telling them to be, to be cognizant of, aware of? And he tells them to abstain from sexual immorality. This is the call he gives them. They already knew this. He already told them this. They were already doing that. And yet he warns them because this can break a church. Verses three through eight. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. Who gives, you his, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, let's think about these words for a second. Every Christian is called to abstain from sexual immorality. What does that mean? It sounds like a lot of things. It sounds like that's a very vague term. And yes, it is. The term is broad. It is a, a, it is a category of sin because it includes everything in that category. He doesn't say abstain from a very specific type of sexual immorality. He, he says if it's sexually immoral, abstain from it from the entire thing. Notice here that the Thessalonians are not being rebuked again. The tone doesn't seem corrective, it's not disciplinary, it's preventative, right? He says, I know you're doing what we told you to do, keep doing it more and more, abstain from sexual immorality, that's what he says. And the reason why he says that to the Thessalonians is because they lived in a society where sexual immorality was, was viewed either indifferently or favorably. It was rampant in their society and it was fine. Well, go figure, right? I mean, that's not all that different from what we live in today. Far be it from anyone to think that being a Christian makes you immune to temptation. That is just not true. Being a Christian doesn't make you immune to temptation. It makes you a larger target of it. Satan doesn't need to work hard to tempt the unbelieving world. He already owns them. 
and their own flesh will do that, but the people of God, that the men and women who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and who, who fall upon the cross of Jesus, that's where he has to do his work. And so he comes after you. A deceiver doesn't need to deceive people who already believe his lies. He has to come to deceive people who are holding on to truth. Take a moment to acknowledge the fact that we live in a culture that is thoroughly wayward in regards to sex. There isn't a more sexually perverted or immoral society than what we live in today. Sex is tolerated in any form, by anyone, with anyone else, at any time, in any place, in any way. And it's not just tolerated, but it's advocated and promoted and marketed and celebrated and stamped as your identity, as though your sexuality is who you are. As though, just as you could say, I am a Christian, my identity is in Christ. Someone could say, I am a homosexual. My identity is in my homosexuality. The constant screaming of these messages from the movies we watch and the music we listen to, the celebrities we look up to, the politicians that we hear, it has deluded and deceived Christians such that Christians too struggle just like the rest of the world. And so many Christians have come under the, the illusion, the delusion, that the world is right. That somehow the unbelievers figured out something that God was confused about. Despite the fact that we have the plain and clear truth of scripture because our flesh denies what we know God commands. I wonder how many marriages there are at this church and how many marriages there will be at this church where both bride and groom were or will be virgins at their wedding altar. The words, you may now kiss the bride, are no longer a step forward. It's a show, it's a tradition because you have no idea the stuff that they've done while they were dating. And the world celebrates this, they calls it, you know, the world calls it freedom. Freedom of sexual expression, sexual freedom. They call it freedom. And yet we are enslaved by it. Our society makes sexual freedom such a priority that they will destroy the sanctity of holy marriage and matrimony to have it. They'll say marriage isn't what you think marriage is supposed to be. God was wrong about marriage. Love isn't what love is supposed to be. God was wrong about love. How many churches are destroyed by this? There are too many horror stories of how sexual immorality has so destroyed the lives of our own members. Many of you came from other churches where that happened to you and you looked to your leaders, you looked to your pastors and said, do something, what will you do? And they did nothing. They tried to make it quietly go away. 
tell you to be quiet so you don't divide the church. Protect the perpetrator. Ignore the victim. Shameful. I suspect many pastors don't preach on this because it brings themselves under judgment. So an exhortation to every pastor and preacher out there. Brothers, we don't preach just what we're good at. And we don't preach just where we're above reproach. We preach the whole counsel of God and the scripture stands in judgment of us too. And where we are out of line, we must be rebuked and corrected. If you don't give the whole counsel of God, you already failed. And you don't herald the gospel. You usher people to hell. Every man and woman should be protected. Every man and woman should be warned. Every believer should know that this sin threatens even the healthiest of churches. And it is not because of some member in the room. It is a clear and present danger for every believer in his or her own heart. The philosophy of the sexual revolution is to think that sex is just a function of the body. Just like eating and sleeping. This kind of this attitude about it, it's just a physical demand, it's chemical, it has to be satisfied, so don't make rules about it. If you make rules about it, all you're doing is you're promoting people to get all sorts of different kind of psychoses because they have these unmet needs. Find someone who really wants it just like you do who's like-minded about it and has the same ideas of, of how to go about it and then just enjoy yourselves. That's, that's kind of the idea that, that gets thrown around. Anyone who tries to push back against the tide of society's sexual immorality is considered old-fashioned and narrow-minded. Stand against the, the world's definition of love, the world's definition of, of marriage or romance or whatever. People say if you don't express your sexual desires, then... then it creates mental illness. You realize today that the only people that use the term premarital sex is Christians because to the world, premarital sex is just sex. In fact, now, the world is saying you, you have to have premarital sex to see whether or not you should marry this person. Like it's some kind of a test. They have to... They have to pass the test. See if you're quote unquote compatible. That idea of compatibility, we're, we're just not compatible. It's an offense to the gospel that says we reconcile. The Thessalonians lived in a culture that was wayward just like ours. And there were various types of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is broad, it's a category. But let's talk about what it is. There's pornography, where you view sexual images to indulge your own desires. There's masturbation, 
where you have sex with yourself. There's prostitution, where you pay someone for a, a one-time transaction for sex. In their day, there was concubinage, where you, you purchase a concubine, a slave, whose sole purpose was to fulfill your sexual desires. There's promiscuity, where you move from one sexual relationship to another without regard for commitment or covenant. There's friends with benefits, which existed in their day and in ours, where you have sex with a mutually consensual partner on occasion with no particular payment or commitment necessary. The basis is purely recreational. Adultery, where you have sex with another person's spouse. In their day, they had temple prostitution, where you have sex with temple prostitutes, usually with the aid of drugs in order to commune with the gods, they thought. Homosexuality, where you have sex male to male or female to female. Pedophilia, where you have sex with children, usually with young boys. Bestiality, where you have sex with animals. They didn't have a word for having sex with objects. They just called that fornication, another broad term. And then there was transvestitism, which like now for us, we might call it transgender, intersex, gender dysphoria, a lot of different things that kind of overlap in meaning and have small different distinguishing nuances, but you identify yourself as a sex other than the male or female that you were born as. Jesus goes ahead in Matthew 5 and says, even looking at a person lustfully is sexually immoral. It's like adultery. All of these were understood by the Jews and by Christians in, in that day as sexual immorality because the Old Testament scriptures made it plain. God had made himself very clear. The Apostle Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, they knew that these were immoral. They knew that God designed sex to be celebrated in the sanctity of marriage between one man, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. And so when they planted the Thessalonian church, they saved this church from this kind of immorality. They called them out of it. But they know how compelling temptation is. They know desire is strong. They know society is corrupt. They know past habits are hard to break. They know previous mistakes kind of make you go, well, I already did it, so what difference does it make if I do it again or if I keep doing it? They know how easy it would be for the Thessalonians to fall back to their old ways once the spiritual excitement of their salvation wears off. That's why they remind the church that you were saved and you were instructed not to live in sexual immorality, so stay on that course. Look at verse one again. It says, finally, brothers, then we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Verse six. No one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. We warned you. You're doing it, you're doing it more and more, and we warned you. So you've heard this from us before. 
The Apostle Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of an instruction that they've already received, they were already obeying, and yet still had to be reminded again and again. Be careful. God does not tolerate sexual immorality. The church cannot live like the world. The worst thing would be for the people of God to say, how could God call this wrong when the world says it's right? The world is owned by a devil. The world is cursed in sin. The world is destined for destruction and hell. Don't listen to the world. Look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if, if you notice, it says, this is the will of God. You ever just wondered, what's God's will for my life? That's it. Abstain from sexual immorality. Don't ignore that part and look for what job does he want you to have? What school does he want you to go to? What's the will of God? Abstain from sexual immorality. That's the will of God. Don't look for, for little special answers for yourself as though the will of God is he's just formulating this whole plan around you. It's, it's not a you-centered plan. It's a holiness-centered plan, a Jesus-centered plan. You plan your life around his holiness, around Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, as in like you should have a high view of marriage. You should have a holy view of marriage held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Sex within marriage is honorable. Any sex outside of marriage, any bed other than the marriage bed is defiling, immoral, adulterous, and will be judged. Whether it's sex just in your mind, sex with yourself, sex with an object, sex with your hand. If it's not from, with, for, and through marriage, abstain. Avoid. And you know the instinct to ask, how far can I go? Which already you know is how much of the sinful desire can I get away with? Kill the sinful desire. Confess it, pray it out. If you are married and it's not okay to do with someone else, it's not okay to do outside of marriage. That's it. This is the will of God. It's not an opinion. It's not an interpretation. Verse eight, therefore whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Does the world disagree? Yeah, and then the world is wrong. And the world is judged by God. And the world is going to hell. Do you prefer to agree with the world? Then you'll go to hell with it. Abstain from sexual immorality, how do you do that? Well, I'll, I'll try to give you four four principles that might help on how exactly to think through this and to help you accomplish it. First, 
Don't let your body control you. Have control over your own body, over your own vessel. If you notice, um, that's, that's the word there. You know, it says, uh, have control over your body. Um, but the, the word in the Greek is vessel. It's a skewos, which, that's like where we get the word skewer. It means a utensil, a tool. You know, ha- have uh, control over your own tool. And uh, people think that, uh, that because of like 1 Peter 3, or, you know, where it says uh, your wife is the weaker vessel, skewos. They say, oh, this means you have control of your wife. You know, like, as long as you have a, a good, healthy sexual relationship with your wife, then your sexual immorality is under control. That's, that's not, I don't think that's what Paul means. Because Peter says that in 1 Peter 3. He uses skewos to talk about wife. But Paul, I think, is talking about your body. Have control of your own body. And, and, and here's, uh, here's why I say that. I don't think he's saying abstain from sexual immorality by controlling your wife. I don't think he's saying that. Your wife is not a tool for you to control. Besides, in 1 Peter 3, the woman is the weaker vessel, which means that the man is a weak vessel, the woman is a weaker vessel. You're both weak vessels. Both of you are vessels. So 1 Peter 3 doesn't see the man as a power and controller and the woman as a tool. You're both tools in the hands of God. Your wife is not a tool in your hand for your own gratification. That's a very poor understanding of your co-partnership in the gospel. Both the man and woman are vessels of God. The man doesn't control the woman nor vice versa. Not only that, but the context here is not about marriage and wife, but it's about your body. Control your body. If he were talking about your wife, it doesn't make sense. You know, he's, uh, look at verse five. You know, he's saying like, control your body, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, it's just a weird thing to say if he's talking about your wife, because it's fine to have passion for your wife. That's good. But this is about your body. Don't, don't, uh, don't use your body and just run around in passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. It's not about getting your wife under control. It's about getting your body under control. So don't let your body control you. Don't be mastered by anything. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. Overcome addiction. You know, instead, of, instead of living to eat, just eat to live. Right? You, shouldn't, you shouldn't be under the power of some kind of addiction. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach and the, and the stomach for food. That's a little like, quote that he's using from their society. God will destroy one and both, both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, if you think about that, that's just saying that uh, you don't get to say, it's my body, I get to do whatever I want with it. God's not allowed to give me rules on that. He's, he's explicitly saying, your body is for the Lord. He gets to tell you what is the proper use of it. He made it. He gave it to you. It's his. He put it under your stewardship. Your stewardship does not override his authority. Don't think that just because, uh, because you really want it that you have to go after it. Look at verse 15. Do you, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Right? You're accountable for how you use your body. Just because something feels good doesn't mean that you should have it. Don't let your body control you. The best place to look for where Paul talks about controlling the body is in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. 
I discipline my body, I keep it under control. I, I kind of like it in the NIV, the old NIV. It said, I beat my body, I make it my slave. Controlling your body includes controlling your appetites, your desires, disciplining yourself. You have to be able to just get up and exercise if you need to exercise. You have to be able to deny yourself food if, if uh, you need to deny yourself food. It doesn't mean you have to be working out all the time or you know, cutting all the carbs out and avoiding all sugar and stuff, but you should develop mastery over your desire where, to the point where your desire is not your God. Where you can say no, if you, if you feel like this would not be a good idea, then you don't do it. You gotta work on some of those habits. You do that, develop the ability to say no to bodily appetites, control yourself, develop that discipline. If there's anything you go, where you go like, I would never do that, I would never, I don't know, I'd never run a, a mile a week. Well, there you go, now you gotta do that. Develop the discipline. Don't, don't be ruled by your, by your desires, your appetites. The key to controlling your body really is walking in the spirit. I know that's, that's vague. What is walking in the spirit? You know, it sounds like just religious talk. But really, it's that idea of being prayerful, worshipful, and, and just focusing on God as much as you can. Look at, uh, uh, at Galatians 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. See why I'm using that terminology? Walk by the spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Next verse. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the thing that you want to do. You got to start your day in a way that unbelievers don't start their day. You got to live your day in a way that unbelievers don't live their day. Saturate your day in prayer. Spend time reading the word, focusing your thoughts. Talk about your faith with people. Avoid being in tempting situations. If you know you are most tempted when you're alone with your computer at night, avoid being alone with your computer at night. If you know you're most tempted by being with your girlfriend or boyfriend at night, then avoid being alone with your boyfriend or girlfriend at night. Avoid temptation. Get your body under control. You have to develop that discipline to say, yeah, I want this, but I will not have it. Second, when it comes to the knowledge of what's good and evil, right and wrong, or good and bad, never agree with the unbelieving world because that is a guaranteed wrong answer. When it comes to what's good and evil, or right and wrong, good and bad, Never agree with the unbelieving world. That's why verse 5, we'll put it back up, says, don't control your body in, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Don't ever imitate people who don't know God. Don't ever get your cues of, of spirituality, moral principle, or anything like that from people who don't know God. Never imitate people who don't know God. They only have sinful nature and they don't have Holy Spirit. So where do you think they're leading you? Where do you think their advice heads? Don't imitate the passion of, the, of lust like it said in verse five. Right, don't, 
Don't imitate that passion, that lust. Don't do that. What, what passion, what lust? What does that look like in godless people? Romans 1 tells you. The Apostle Paul also wrote Romans, and he says in verse 24, Therefore, God gave the unbelievers up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So notice they're given up to their lusts. Next. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. So we have passions and lusts going on here. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Very plainly, that is homosexuality. And I'm sure you can throw in intersex, gender dysphoria, all that with it, transgender, etc. It is the full denial of God's obvious biological design, his intent, which is seen in what is made, is plainly seen in what is made. That's how a man transgresses and wrongs his brother, as verse 6 talked about, in the realm of sexual immorality, particularly in homosexuality. Don't, don't transgress your brother this way. And, here, and here's the world saying that God doesn't tell us what's good. Our feelings and our bodies do. God doesn't get to tell us what love is. Our, our feelings and our bodies do. Don't listen to the world. The world is leading you to hell. Satan's in charge of the world. He's given the world its message. The world is evangelizing you. Don't listen to it. Third, to help you deal with sexual immorality, to abstain from it, you have to understand that God is an avenger in all these things. God is an avenger and you are solemnly warned. Look at verse six of First Thessalonians four. The Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. It's a warning that the Apostle Paul gives over and over again. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Verse 21, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When the apostle John writes the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. He talks about how everything ends up. And he says, for the people of God, there's this brand new destiny for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. A brand new universe. And he talks about that. He says, everyone who repents of their sin and has victory in Jesus, everyone who conquers this, they'll, they'll be in that new heaven, the new earth. Now, who doesn't get into the new heaven, new earth? Look at Revelation 21, verse 7. The one who conquers will have this heritage, meaning new heaven, new earth with God. And I will be, God says, I will be his God, and he will be my son. 
verse eight, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. God is the avenger. He will judge sexual immorality. I, I don't know what that judgment looks like. Will it be immediate earthly consequences? I don't know. Maybe a miserable marriage, an unfulfilled sex life, divorce, disease, trials, trouble, death. Will those things be immediate earthly punishment for that kind of I don't know. When, when it says God's an avenger, is it just warning about the, the fire of hell? I don't know. Is it about uh, maybe God will just give you over to your ungodly desires then and it'll numb you to other godly convictions. You'll lose out on blessings. You'll lose out on salvation. Is that what it is? I don't know. God doesn't specify what the judgment is, but he does promise that he judges it. He does declare himself the avenger against the sexually immoral, and I believe that he is. And then you, you really just gotta put God to the test if you're, if you're that bold. And say, okay God, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. What are you gonna do? Watch what happens. I guess you'll find out. A fourth principle for the, helping you abstain from sexual immorality would be simply to understand that sexual immorality cannot coexist with holiness. Or another word for that would be, sexual immorality cannot coexist with sanctification. Or an easier word for that would be, sexual immorality cannot coexist with spiritual growth. Verse seven, God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness, which also would be the word sanctification for spiritual growth. You can't grow spiritually meaning you cannot have a deeper, more meaningful relationship with God. You cannot become more like Jesus if you are sexually immoral. You were called to sanctification. You were called to holiness. You were called to spiritual growth, not impurity. And you must choose one or the other. I suppose I'm gonna leave it at that for today. I, I imagine many of us have much to think on and pray about. It had always been this topic that scared me as I was growing up, because since my college years, I was sexually immoral. And when you become a Christian, that doesn't magically disappear, it stays and you get tortured by it. As an unbeliever, you indulge and you celebrate your immorality. And as an unbeliever, it's not even immoral to you. It's just, it's not sexual immorality, it's just sexual behavior. But as a believer, you struggle with it. It, it torments you. You do what you don't wanna do and you don't do what you wanna do. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Part of me, wants to leave all of us just kind of squirming uncomfortably, feeling condemned for our sinfulness. Maybe to absorb the gravity 
of the issue. But what's astonishing about Jesus is that he offers us salvation instead of condemnation. He knows what we were, he knows how we lived, and even now he knows where we struggle and he yet still invites us to be something better, something holy. Look again at 1 Corinthians 6. Verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, which means made righteous, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Does that mean that their struggle went away magically, instantly? No. But it did mean that God gave them a brand new identity and then equipped them with the power to overcome. And those with true saving faith overcome. First John, chapter one, verse nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Think long and hard on this. Think of how you behave. Think of what you value. Think of what you watch. Pornography is not just on adult websites. It's just in television now. If you say you're without sin on this, the word of God is not in you. If you confess your sin, God is faithful and he's just, meaning he'll punish the sin on the cross with Jesus who pays for it. And he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. means if you confess and repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, it doesn't instantly make all your sinfulness go away. You'll still struggle with it. You will still struggle with it, but you'll start to outgrow it. It will not be your identity anymore. You're washed by the blood of Jesus, covered by his love and grace, made holy, made righteous by the authority of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. God didn't just command you out of sexual immorality. He paid its penalty in full for all your violations in the past, in the present, and even in the future. And he provided you with the power of the Holy Spirit to struggle and grow and overcome.
That's what he did on his end. On your end, it'll take discipline in your body to control your body, not in the passion of lust like the unbelievers. It means rejecting the opinion of the world and heeding God's solemn warnings against this kind of sin and his solemn warnings against how the world tries to deceive you into a different understanding of love, a different understanding of sexuality, a different understanding of gender, a different understanding of marriage. It'll take desperate prayer and accountability and dependence on the forgiveness found in Jesus and the power provided by the Holy Spirit. But God has never called you anywhere that you cannot go. He called you out of impurity. He called you into holiness. Paid the penalties that stop you from getting there and gave you the power to make the journey. By the instruction of the Lord Jesus, he has told you how you ought to walk and how you are to please God. Do not get caught up on feeling like a failure. Set your mind on growth. And as you get better at it, grow in it more and more. Don't be discouraged that you feel like you still have so much stuff to improve every day, every week. Celebrate in where you grow. This is your sanctification. This is holiness and honor. And this is the will of God for you. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the solemn warning. It's not a light suggestion. It is a solemn warning. Because no matter how good this church is, this sin is lurking in our midst and seeks to break us. When people fall into guilt of sexual immorality, someone walks away broken, depressed, in despair, wishing for death, hating the pain of life. Far be it from us to do nothing. We thank you for the solemn warning because we need it. And we thank you that we are not abandoned to condemnation, but we're invited to confession and repentance that we be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. Bless this church and cleanse it. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.